Peace We Build It is a podcast about the Alliance for Peacebuilding and its network of over 130 organizations working globally in 181 countries to reduce and prevent violent conflict and build sustainable peace. Host Tanya Domi will interview AFP's global partners, expert guests, and policy advocates on how they tackle the challenging work of conflict prevention and peace building in a world riddled by increasing violent conflict and war. Alan Charles Chipman is a faith-rooted organizer and strategist at the Initiatives of Change USA. He is a lifelong faith community activist, having started his work at the ripe age of six in his hometown of Baltimore when he was inspired by a group of pastors working to connect their congregations to their communities through service. As IOC's faith-rooted organizer, Alan runs programming for faith communities, equipping them with the tools to think theologically and logically about race and the history of Richmond and America. During college, Alan engaged with faith communities to change society through mentorship programs and helped to establish a faculty-student collaborative organization called Reconciliation and Conversation for Everyone. Alan has also worked in the corporate world where he advocated to build an African-American network to strive for racial equity at one of Richmond's Fortune 500 companies. He also acted as liaison between minority employees and the Human Resources Department when issues involving race arose. A podcaster, Alan Charles Chipman's series, A Difference in Thought, is dedicated to the work of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Since the murder of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri in 2014, and the creation of the Black Lives Matter movement reignited U.S. organizing to advance racial justice, creating a multiracial movement and a return to its historical past. Last year, the Black Lives Matter movement also connected internationally when George Floyd was murdered by a police officer in Minneapolis, also reigniting an international movement to address racial justice. During the history of the U.S. civil rights movement, activists like Randall Robinson created the Trans-Africa Movement and organized in the bodies of the United Nations. Our guest, Alan Charles, will lead us in this conversation. Welcome to the Peace We Build It podcast, Alan Charles Chipman. Great to be here with you. So you are an organizer and transformational strategist with the Initiatives of Change USA, a partner with the Alliance for Peacebuilding. Tell me what the Initiatives of Change USA does, and can you explain your role as a faith-rooted organizer and transformation strategist? Sure. Um, Initiatives of Change USA is a branch of Initiatives of Change, which is a global organization. We do a lot of uh, peace-building and uh, dialogue across divides. So here locally in uh, the United States, 
uh, specifically here in Richmond, uh, the founders of Initiatives to Change USA, uh, really saw the legacy of the Confederacy and a lot of the divide around race and the history of uh, the United States and the history of Richmond as well, and really wanted to really start uh, telling the truth about the history of uh, Richmond and Virginia's role in racism and systemic racism. And so uh, they started uh, Hope in the Cities, and uh, we do something called Community Trust Building Fellowship that takes people from different practices and backgrounds and helps them uh, really think more deeply and honestly about the history of race. And I work as uh, with a lot of faith communities to talk about how uh, faith uh, has been misused, but also uh, calls us in its true form to combat uh, injustice. And I work also at the policy level, just because when we talk about systemic racism, we definitely uh, know that it doesn't just live at the interpersonal level. It also is in policies and how opportunities are formed. So we do a lot of work and advocacy in those levels as well. It's a huge agenda, a timely agenda for sure. You're right in the middle of the thick of it. Uh, we can actually look back at I would like to start in recent history, and very recent, I might add, is the, the murder of Michael Brown in Ferguson in 2014, which launched the Black Lives Matter movement. And then I think, you know, the real exclamation point on that unfortunate murder was, of course, the absolutely egregious, offensive, and actually terrible murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis in 2020 last year by police officer Derek Chauvin, now a convicted felon, really further attenuated the issues of racial injustice in America and actually led to an international outcry throughout the world. How has these events affected the agenda and your work? So it has certainly brought more people to a level of consciousness about what's going on. Uh, Kwame Torre, formerly Stokely Carmichael, one of the protégés of Dr. King and Fannie Lou Hamer, says the job of the conscious is to make that which is unconscious conscious. And so uh, there's a lot of people becoming aware of what has been going on. Unfortunately, it, it typically takes a, a, a high profile death to bring a lot of white America into recognizing kind of what is happening. And so in a strange turn of events, because also uh, here in Richmond, about two years ago, there was a death of a school teacher who had a mental health breakdown named Marcus David Peters that was killed by police. And um, there, there has, still hasn't been uh, correct justice for him. And it was interesting to see that a lot of the people locally, the local actors, wanted to turn their attention to what was happening with George Floyd while ignoring the own systemic racism that kind of happened there here as well. And so it's a great time, but also it's a time where, as Dr. King says, it's important for us to stay awake during a revolution. Dr. King in 67 and 68 and Dr. Coretta Scott King as well talk about our need to expand our definition of racism beyond the brutal act. So for them, you know, Dr. King was saying it's not always the Klan burning a cross. It's not always uh, hoses and dogs being released on people, but the economic uh, disenfranchisement, uh, the contempt for the poor, as Dr. Coretta Scott King would say. So in a way, it, it brings people into a certain level of where uh, racism impacts people but it also has to expand beyond that. Here in Richmond, 
some protesters started taking down some of the monuments and then the city kind of continued as well. And so some people are saying, yay, we've taken down the monuments. And so our challenge in our work is how do we not only take down the Confederate monuments, but how do we take down the Confederate outcomes uh, that still persist in how uh, people are valued and how resources are distributed within our city? And I think that's also true within our nation as well. Oh, sure. Absolutely. And that actually yields to a good question here. You've alluded to structural racism and to the extent that you, you're talking about now the, the legacy of the Confederation, just to what degree, and it would seem to me it's pretty extensive about the structural racism against Black Americans in the United States. And how is your organization addressing those issues? Let's talk about locally and nationally first before we proceed and discuss your global work. Sure. Uh, so locally, one of the things that helps me uh, understand um, structural racism and uh, as some people say white supremacy, I, I prefer the term uh, uh, white delusion, is the essay, The Souls of White Folk by W.E.B. Du Bois. I many you know about the souls of black folk, but he also wrote one called The Souls of White Folk. And he talks about uh, the need to question what is what is whiteness, but it's this inherent belief that uh, whiteness is superior. And he calls it a, a religion and a mythology that people are being converted to. And he pretty much says that whiteness is to inherit the earth forever and ever, right? And so this, this, this somehow claim or, or as Eddie Glau Jr. would say, uh, the lie or the value gap that white lives are inherently more important and should be centered and prioritized more than others. And so sometimes that does act out in very violent forms, which uh, Du Bois talks about, but he talks about a little bit earlier that he talks about a disdain for truth telling. It talks about an erosion of empathy. It talks about a delusional history being taught that centers what white people have done. And so when we think about the legacy of the Confederacy and what we're kind of doing here locally, uh, we have uh, partners such as Dr. Ron Bagat in what he calls massive resilience. It's a play on massive resistance and talks about how do we uh, raise the consciousness of the truth of history in light of a delusional history that's been passed where the Civil War is about the war of Northern aggression and ignoring the Southern aggression done to uh, Black people and the structural uh, laws that were in place to continue to disenfranchise people. It's the work that talks about the housing crisis that we are in, where the, our city subsidizes developers to continue in acts of gentrification, but will cut $4 million of funding to Black seniors and the disabled uh, in a budget session, right? So it, it's sometimes it's very uh, detailed and specific. Sometimes it's very broad. Uh, and so we're building a lot of coalitions uh, right now to talk about sustainable housing and not just affordable housing. And how does uh, the legacy of Jim Crow and redlining play into uh, an economic wealth gap in a competitive housing market where the ability to have more cash on hand could be kind of like a de facto restrictive covenant, uh, the same type of restrictive covenants that were in the neighborhoods before the Confederate monuments went up. Uh, one thing I like to say is just because something is current doesn't mean that it is new. So a lot of the disparities that we see today are directly connected to the laws that were uh, put in place during the time preceding the Confederacy with, with, with the slave codes, but the legacy of slavery and uh, Jim Crow, systemic racism, mass incarceration. We're doing a lot of work with returning citizens who are now uh, seeing, you know, as Michelle Alexander termed the new Jim Crow, uh, especially in place once people are coming out and, and in a system that disproportionately affects uh, the black and brown 
members of society, uh, we still are seeing them being denied for housing, being denied for jobs, being denied for school. And so we've passed some some good laws to, to help uh, block the box on those initiatives. And a lot of people celebrate it, as we should, that we've also abolished the death penalty. But again, the reason I bring that up is that we need to expand our definition besides just black death. One person that I like his input, that Dr. Greg Carr says there's a difference between uh, saying black life matters and saying black death matters, right? Because if all of our initiatives are based on what happens and just preventing the death of someone, there are so many uh, issues of structural violence that we ignore that affect the life of someone. And so many times throughout the history, I kind of call it the vending machine almost, like a vending machine of death almost, where Black people have to input a, a dead body, whether it be Dr. King or JFK or Abraham Lincoln, in order to select something that comes out. So to get a voting rights bill, Kennedy has to die, or or Dr. King has to die, or Medgar Evers, or all these other people kind of have to die. And then after death is inputted into the system, we get to select one item, and then suddenly it's everything's cool. And so how do we move towards not just preventing Black death, but also to investing in Black flourishing and restoring people from the historical harms that we've had? Absolutely. Um, Yes, about the ability to thrive, the ability to attain a quality of life, a life of dignity and respect. I mean, these are all critical to not only obviously to Black Americans, but also you bring up about uh, Eddie Gow Jr., who actually has said that, you know, white lives matter more. When uh, politicians really talk about the middle class or the working class, they're really referring to white people. They aren't really <laughs> talking about Black people. What are your thoughts about that? Uh, absolutely. You know, and this is this talks about the delusional history that we tell because right. it doesn't just live within Trumpism and the far right and QAnon and people that were at the insurrection. It's when President Biden says things such as the middle class built this country. Right. Which is not true. Right. It was land taken from the Native Americans built on the labor of black people and also uh, our Asian brothers and sisters and siblings as well. But then you also have the Chinese Exclusion Act. So even when you look at the things President Biden saying the middle class built this country and it's unions that really helped lift us up. Right. But it leaves out the history of people like A. Philip Randolph in Charles Hamilton, Houston, that actually had to sue to make unions uh, accept uh, That's black right. people within them, right? That's when you right. think about when you read uh, "Working Towards Whiteness" uh, from Ellis Island to the suburbs, you read "The Color of Laws," "The Color of Law," and the redlining, where uh, the middle class there were highways built through black neighborhoods like Jackson Ward, so the people could move out of a public housing and into these suburbs that were strictly white with restrictive covenants and jobs at different factories. Uh, that left out so many of the people that actually did build the country. Right. So. A lot I mean, of that starts with the history that we tell. I mean, a lot of the erased history is, for example, slaves built the White House. And right. I wonder how many monuments slaves built. These are things that are erased and ignored. Alan Charles, isn't that really also about actually getting a correct history, a truthful history in place in our schools? And is it no mistake that now we see a very strong pushback, unfortunately, by a lot of people in the Republican Party saying 
we oppose critical race theory and we don't want it taught in our schools. There's no mistaking, I think, that they're attacking schools as well, school curriculum. What are your thoughts about that? Absolutely. So we have to understand, and and this is why Du Bois's work is so great. He talks about there needs to be a delusional history that uh, excludes everything but the contributions of white society and edits out their Mm -hmm. atrocities, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, It's the same type of wording for that Reinhold Niebuhr lifts up in the irony of American history, right? It's the same type of history that Ramon Hood Paul in the Japanese war tribunes talks about if we're retroactively applying laws, why don't we do it to the United States, which which is founded on genocide, right? So there's these pillars of public memory that shape and allow this to happen. One of them is, is, is schools and education. One of them are kind of the narratives that are pushed through uh, religious centers, especially through evangelical white Christianity uh, yeah. that you that you kind of see. Uh, then yes. there are actually the laws that are kind of in place. And then there are just kind of like thoughts, customs, laws, and traditions of people. And so right now, a lot of those pillars that were used and pushed by the legacy of the Daughters of the Confederacy who changed the textbooks, mm-hmm. who put up monuments to push a certain type of narrative, right. uh, who, uh, you know, wanted to have people question the type of education people get when they get, a, a, you know, into universities, because these are the types of places where these things were challenged. Uh, it's, it's a challenging. And then even when we see now in the response to that, the 1619 project at the point where it is changing curriculums, right? Correct. They want to say that's, no, well, that's CRT, sure. right? We're talking about something, talking about 1619. And then when to talk about something that was talking about in 1972, right? So there's a lot of anachronism in that as well, right? It's like, it's not like Frederick Douglass was reading Derrick Bell right. <laughs> when, when right. he talks about the, the hypocrisy of the two Christianities in America, right? So so there's this attempt to, again, because the boy talks about how um, the delusion of whiteness thrives on ignorance and indoctrination. When those things start to get challenged, you start to have the type of awakening. A lot of a lot of the awakening that people have here that might come from the death of someone or might come through just seeing the disparities and how things do not match what we say versus what we actually practice, which the boy talks about. We are coming more and more to the point where the highest uh, moral statement to say in America is not to say that I am right or just or fair, but to say that I am white. Right. And as long as you can hold to that tenet, it doesn't matter what else everything does. Right. That's why you have evangelicals who are mad at President Obama when he wore a tan suit, but have no problem with the moral failures of Donald Trump. Right. Why? Because Donald Trump was pushing forward uh, an agenda that solidified whiteness. And, you know, you remember the last part of his administration, they said not the 1619 project. We want the 1776 project. Right. Uh, right. Uh, dis- despite Thomas Paine at the founding of America saying, we don't have to inherit this trade that Britain has pushed on us. We can do something differently. And then in a closed door session uh, in 1776, they decide, now nah, we're going to leave that out. So it is this heritage, or uh, as I like to say, the systemic muscle memory of pushing against uh, the truth. As scriptures say, someone who observes themselves in a mirror and walks away and forgetting what they have observed. And so uh, part of truth telling the work that we do is having to hold the mirror to America and say that this is exactly who you are. And until we begin to act differently and build different habits and defy the lies that, uh, as Eddie Glaude Jr. says, actually structures our society, um, we'll continue to be in the same pattern. Yes, it's very interesting it's the 1619 project and then the, the little evolution 
and it was very quick, the jump to critical race theory and the objections to it are very interesting because the right wing will tell you the most successful efforts they have made is through homeschooling. Through mm -hmm. homeschooling, uh, a colleague of mine at the Graduate Center, CUNY, uh, Professor Heath Brown, has written about homeschooling through a political lens, and it is touted in the right wing the most success they have had in the past 40 years was the establishment of homeschooling and their own curriculum, which is loosely regulated, very loosely regulated. I just want to interject that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, to our conversation here. And I think there are different legacies of homeschooling as well. Right. Because I was homeschooled. And the reason my, my mother sure. homeschooled me is because, you know, we were in some some of those circles where they had the I think the publisher was a Becca and some other things that came out of Liberty or, you know, Pensacola right. is really right. the hub of producing that type of and it kind of marries it's kind of like this Christian nationalism that is taught as if, you know, after God gave the 10 commandments to Moses, he started working on the constitution. It's kind of like I mean, this, this vibe that you get, right? Like where, okay. where God is like, wait, that you like the 10 commandments. Wait till you see this constitution. Right. But my mom reading that distorted history and saying, no, we're not going to do this. So, um, she actually would take us to the, to, to the library. And I remember getting up this thick college level textbook. I can still see the cover in my mind wow. of that really talked about the atrocities of America as well. And, and really like telling the truth about it because she saw within that circle, the indoctrination that was happening. And she really stood and said, nope, not my children. And so, and Very I've, I've been interesting talking- because there's some social science now just recorded actually in the last couple of weeks that I've seen that there's been a substantial increase of homeschooling in the black community and probably for the very reasons you're pointing out right, yeah. here, right now, right? Because when you think about systemic racism and how people are treated within schools as well, I mean, you remember uh, now uh, there were these different laws called the Crown Acts and some of that had to do with some of the private schools and homeschooling yes. that were open that yes. black people would go to. And well, you, you, you can't come with your hair looking like that and the same type of a cultural genocide that happened with some of the schools with our Native American brothers and sisters. I think that school in Canada that found hundreds of children's bones under oh, one yes. of the- Oh, yes. This is in uh, Manitoba. Yes. Manitoba right. is reporting like hundreds and hundreds of bodies yeah. have been excavated there. Right. So it's a metaphor, again, of like when we talked about what the forms of racism, there's the actual death and then the the death right. that happens below ground, the death that happens above ground. And so, you know, I have a lot of parents who, you know, when, with virtual schooling, some of their black children feel better because they don't have to be in that structure. And so a lot of parents now are saying, well, how can I keep this safe environment for my children? So some of them are homeschooling or building different networks uh, and umbrella groups. You know, a lot of the cultural values, we lost the integration. Uh, I can't remember the, the brother's name right now, but he he used to shoot a uh, Gordon Parks, I believe his name was. He, used to, he, he did Shaft and he wrote, used to write for Time magazine, but he had a very interesting exhibit that mm -hmm. talks about in the beginning of the exhibit, it's the report cards. Uh, for the last class uh, uh, before integration from the black schools. And so it was like this, this young woman, she's, she takes the lead. She asks questions. Mm -hmm. She, you know, it's very positive. And then the very next year under a white school, it's she's disruptive, uh, isn't cooperative, all these other types of things. And so even like the, the cultural alignment that happened that was lost uh, within that, because you, you see how black 
teachers lost their jobs during integration. And there was, I think, a group out of North Carolina that actually walked out and did a lot of different things as well. And so there's still that cultural struggle that's happening there as well, because part of systemic racism is the indoctrination of whiteness and white delusion that Du Bois talks about that happens within our public school systems as well. So there are some people who take their kids out because the indoctrination is being challenged and they want to return to that. So they pull their kids out and say, I want, I want to teach this kind of white centered delusional history. And then there are people who also take their kids out because there's still some vestiges of the Daughters of Confederacy within school. So yeah, well, I want to validate that because in New York City, they've reported that uh, people of color are, uh, particularly in the Black community, are resisting returning their kids to school. Very interesting. Also, New York City is one of, it is, I think, the largest school system in the country and the Mm -hmm. most segregated school system in the country. Uh, despite the fact I live in a progressive state uh, as New York. So speaking of which, so we're talking about entrenched structural, you know, white delusion in schools um, and the efforts to advance this new 1619 uh, curriculum is underway. I know a lot of people are working on this. Nonetheless, I think like you see in the LGBT community, you see one step forward, two steps back. We're seeing this play out here, and this is going on hundreds of years. And now what's really attenuated and I think has woke up white consciousness in our country was, of course, the brutal murder of George Floyd. And since then, There's been a lot of discussion, including a review by the Department of Justice on pattern and practice of police departments in um, Louisville, Kentucky, and also in Minneapolis, Minnesota. What is your organization? How are you guys confronting uh, policing and public safety as it pertains to African-Americans in America? Uh, Well, one, we just have to a lot of it is a battle in getting the data to verify what communities have been saying. So we had a delegate here, uh, Luke Torian, pass a bill about, uh, I think it's called the Police Integrity Act, which talks about police actually have to report their data on the stops that they make by racial disparity and things such as that. And so the first year just wrapped up and Black people were disproportionately being stopped in um, pulled over for vehicles uh, stops uh, here in the city of Richmond. Uh, for loitering charges, I think it was 89 or 90 percent African-American. Very high. So things that people have been saying uh, for quite some time. And so here in Richmond, we're uh, setting up a community review board uh, that with subpoena power, I worked in the General Assembly as a legislative aide to also add sheriffs to that as well. And so uh, but there's been a lot of resistance where people don't want to come to the table, you know, but my, as my dad used to say, people don't do what you expect, they do what you inspect. And so really. I think also there's a struggle of how do we get people to believe what people have been saying earlier, right? One of our neighboring counties, uh, and shout out to uh, uh, Dr. Tyrone Nelson, who's one of the uh, county supervisors there. He wanted to start a CRB 
uh, com community uh, review board in his county, he didn't have the votes to do it. So there are some efforts to try and mandate that statewide. But it's a lot when you start getting into the money behind public safety as well, because a lot of those things, too, about reallocating responsibility and resources from police as well, from a budgeting standpoint, uh, there are still struggles uh, into that as well. And, and this is where I talk about the positive and the negative around what's happening with the George Floyd case, right? Because they say, well, it's because Derek Chauvin didn't have the training, so we need to give more money for training. When you actually look at the court case, he did have the training. Yes, and so did. many of these people who have yeah. been doing these things, they do have the training. And so then there's a battle of what are we going to fund? And so there are other initiatives that need to be funded at the local level as well that I talked about earlier, a cut that was made uh, for uh, tax relief for seniors and the disabled. And that was a cut to give police uh, a raise. And so this is why I talk about the battle of we can't just have an initiative that's about pre preventing black death, but we also need to talk about with the money that's on hand, how do we actually fund black futures, uh, fund yes, initiatives that absolutely. are kind of there as well. And so when it's about, well, it's just that there's a lack of training. Again, I think that's, that's a, a bit of delusion if we're going to be honest, well, right? It's I not, it's it, not just about yeah. the lack of training, right? But, but it's, it's about this thing that is so intrinsically deep and entrenched within the belief system and how people, even the psychology of people in this, in this fear that they have that is manufactured, how deeply that is entrenched. I mean, it's yes, I mean, deeper than we can understand sometimes. Yeah, I think we can actually say that a lot of police departments are just predisposed and it's uh, the, there's a discussion about this from a cognitive standpoint. Right. That these stories have been told over and over. Right. So the fear is already planted, or and the the presumption is that this person has ulterior motives and they're likely to be violent, et cetera, et cetera. So that's like all implanted cognitively through narratives that have been, you know, reinforced and shared over decades. Right. And even, right? even you know, how the habits of society express this as well, right? This is why I, I appreciate, I think it was Jackie Robinson that, that uh, was protesting and talking about first-class citizenship, right? Yeah. Uh, meaning that because it's it's not that police don't have the ability to be humane mm -hmm. towards people. We see it happen towards uh, white people so many times. Right. It's that for something in their humanity has been broken and distorted where they either select have to work against a lot of conditioning in order to be humane to people that aren't white, which is a, a part of what <laughs> the boy lays out in the souls of white folk. And so that's how I, deep this goes. I agree. I, I think it's very, very deep seated. So you're doing this at the local level. What do you think what the Biden administration and Congress is working together on about this? There's been a lot of discussion that there's a negotiation ongoing right now that U.S. Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina is working with the Democrats on the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. What do you mm -hmm. think? I think uh, the deal breaker is, and I think Senator Clyburn had talked about this as well, I think the whole issue of qualified immunity is what the yeah. deal breaker is, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Because again, what are the consequences of it? And, and this again mm -hmm. talks about how the system protects bad actors, right? Um, we can talk about uh, good fruit and good apples, but, if, uh, but we have to have a not just a fruit conversation, but a root conversation. 
there's a system that punishes people like the sister in Buffalo, New York, who was a police officer who actually reported against someone using a chokehold and she was penalized and separated from her pension and all these other types of things. So there are consequences for people who, who stand up for black dignity in the system. Right. But if you are taking someone's life or you're tasing a teenager, like we saw in Ocean City, Maryland, that there's a whole system that protects you from that. And so qualified immunity, you know, if you don't really have to face the consequences of certain things, you act differently. I used to work in insurance and uh, that's, I can't remember the term right now because I've been out of that life for so long, but um, uh, essentially it encourages bad behavior when people don't have any investment in any losses they might have. That's why we have things such as the, as the, the deductible, right? If you got a deductible of you know, let's say $3,000, if you hit somebody's car or whatever, you know, you're going to drive a little bit carefully. But if if your deductible zero and you hit somebody's Maserati or, hey, whatever, I'm not, I'm not paying anything. That's bad news for Geico or Progressive, you know, but that's not really something for me. Uh, So in in, in any other profession, you know, we have these types of things where there are limits uh, for that. But the fact that this system is somehow immune to that type of accountability it's just human nature. When you've got skin in the game, you act differently. But when you're protected from the consequences of your decisions, it enables bad behavior. And so yeah. uh, there's there's the still that resistance. The lack of accountability is right. one of the biggest issues facing yeah. the, as the my whole dad's, aspect. Of as my dad case. says, the most dangerous person in yeah. the world is someone who doesn't have to answer to anyone. And so- Here, here. So the Alliance for Peace Building is a strong advocate of Representative Barbara Lee's United States Commission on Truth, Racial Healing, and Transformation, mm-hmm. and has uh, been calling on the civil society organization to, to support this initiative. Why is this Truth and Racial Healing Commission needed in the United States, and what is it going to take to realize this important piece of legislation, in your view? Well, it's important for a lot of reasons. One, truth commissions are helpful in limiting and delegitimizing the lies that have been circulated. So mm-hmm. one at the at the just at the psychological level. So it's 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 good to 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 validate those things. And then also when we look at the precedent for reparations, um when we look at uh I think it was called the Civil Liberties Act that actually I think it was under Reagan that actually paid reparations for Japanese in the incarceration camps. Uh, you were coaching on and some other people had worked on that. And but before that, it was a it was I think it was a seven year study that was done that was implemented under I want to say Carter. So it started off as a study. Then they find the pinpoints and find the people and find what needs to be done. And then actually reparation was actually done after that. So if it's following the precedent right now, the closest example we have in recent times of when people actually got redress and repair from that. So I think it's important from that level. I think the spance of it. Because when you think about racism and structural racism, slavery, Jim Crow, urban Mm -hmm. renewal, it's still being uh, implemented as we go on today. Uh, I think it's important that we are flexible enough in what the solutions are because racism looked very differently in different places and how it was implemented. Of course, you have, you know, things as blatant as Tulsa, but sometimes it wasn't a, a a riot and people being trained by the police in that area to, to burn something down. Sometimes it was very much the concentrated efforts of Harlem Bartholomew. When you look at how many black neighborhoods had a highway run through them, uh, you think about redlining, you think about the business opportunities and, and ability to, to amass generational wealth that were left out of 
whether you had segregated federal cabinets, when you think about the land grants that were given out that Dr. King was talking about in uh, 68 when, they, when he was building the uh, Poor People's Campaign and the Resurrection City March that they were going to have. It's been broad and it's been vast. And then I think also as you know, as quote unquote, one of the world leaders, I think it's important for the United States to have this conversation here so that we can also have a global conversation of what is the legacy of the transatlantic slave trade and uh, colonialism as well, which Malcolm X was actually organizing towards later in his life with the Organization for African Unity uh, with, uh, I think he had an office at the United Nations and was talking to different ambassadors from African nations and things such as that. So uh, there's a lot of work to be kind of done there. So it's important for us to have this important step. And again, as we talk about this delusional history and this delusional narrative around the United States that's coming from the left and the right, I think it's important for us to be centered around the truth about what happened, what the cause has been, Mm -hmm. and then get to the work of actually repairing those people that have been targeted by that. That's a huge agenda. I would add that um, uh, we'll see what happens. This is such a slim political line. The Democrats have very little wiggle room at all. Um, and so I think it's going to be very difficult to push forward. Uh, it's it's uh, regrettable, quite frankly. Um, and I don't think it's going to go away. And I would, I would imagine that it's one of the reasons why a holiday doesn't justify any of this. But I think that the holiday, the Juneteenth holiday that we spoke about before we started today, overwhelmingly carried the House and the Senate in acknowledgement of, of the day that slaves were freed in, in, in Texas. They commemorated this holiday originally going back to the 19th century when Lincoln freed the slaves. So that's a cheap outcome, but it's a symbolic one. It's a symbolic right. one, I might add, and important and, and important. Yeah, it's important. And I think, you know, just as we are here in Richmond, you know, we're, we're removing the symbols, but are we addressing the substance of, mm-hmm. of what kind of needs to happen? Because Juneteenth is, is still about a lag and delay between what is announced and what is actually experienced For sure. uh, by, by, by people who suffer under racism. And so, uh, you know, as, as many things are being announced, or, you know, even when after Obama, people try to announce the post-racial America, right? Uh, and then comes <laughs> Trumpism, right? So, right. so you know, uh, and, and, and how, you know, Lincoln declared something. And by the time it was actually implemented, you know, he was dead before. Of course. <laughs> actually, you know, so, so, so there's still those patterns that we see. And, and so it's good that we're announcing something uh, and saying this is what we celebrate in our values, but really, uh, you know, as Dr. King says, budgets are moral issues, as Eddie Glau Jr. talks about in Democracy in Black, the actual habits of society is what actually states what our value system is. And so how do we work towards uh, decreasing that lag between what is announced and what is actually experienced? Absolutely. The work that we have. I, would, I would hope that advocates will use this day. I mean, we want to celebrate this. Um, Absolutely. And- but use this day as a way to push forward an agenda that does advance the dignity and lives of Black Americans, and maybe in a similar way as we do on Martin Luther King Day. Just really quickly, and it's really important because we barely touched on it, and I'm the host, so I'm responsible, but you, your organization is also engaged in international work. And for our listeners, 
there's a, a tradition, a legacy of many African-Americans uh, using international forums to advance an agenda uh, to address and eliminate racial injustice. And Randall Robinson is somebody I actually met in Haiti uh, in 1995 who launched the Trans-Africa Movement and have used the UN as a, as a convening platform to address these issues. It's part of what I call the tradition in human rights of naming and shaming, in this case, the weight of history uh, that has confronted African-Americans. Tell us a, about your work uh, and your organization's work on these issues globally. Sure, absolutely. And, you know, that's one of the legacies that we have to challenge as well is because, you know, initiatives of change has been great in, in, in leveraging those voices kind of pointing outwards away from what America has been doing, right? So again, you know, like kind of this, you know, using, I guess, the American narrative of the grand stage of mm -hmm. the beacon hope in the world leader, but it's, it's, it's still those same, you know, and this is what I've encouraged to be, to, to really work towards is really being able to use that organizing power to turn the lens inwardly towards the United States and what's happening here as well. Uh, there's a great book that talks about the legacy of these movements called Eyes Off the Prize by Carol Anderson that talks about the legacy of people such as Thurgood Marshall, Walter White, uh, Malcolm X, uh, so many people that actually were organizing, uh, especially with, with with African nations and others to talk about at the, at the time, uh, Jim Crow that was happening there. And so we have been seeing some expanses where uh, police violence being called uh, uh, war crimes and crime acts of hate out of out of the yeah. UN. And so uh, I'm very excited to uh, really uh, begin working more and galvanizing our support from the global standpoint, because I, I don't think people rarely hold themselves accountable. So we were talking about, you know, slim chances of what's kind of going to happen with, uh, I think, H.R. 40 is what Senator Barbara Lee is putting forward. But we don't have to wait just for the United States to acknowledge <laughs> what they have done. Uh, as global uh, partners, we can use the, as they say, the bully pulpit to not just accept this Trump's gone, so it's all good and we're returning to this, but mm -hmm. actually talking about the responsibilities that we have as a nation around race. Talk about the responsibility we have of destabilizing uh, nations in Central America. And so it's not, we got to do more than just say, don't come when it comes to, to uh, the legacy of destabilizing nations and the outflow of guns that have come through here. And then also with uh, the continued police brutality and systemic racism that we're seeing uh, and that's still persisting from the legacy of Jim Crow. And so I still I think there's still time for us to pick up the mantle of, uh, and Carol Anderson's book uh, pretty much talks about the legacy of Eyes Off the Prize. She says that it's saying that, yes, the fight for civil rights is, is great as well, but we also must enshrine and encode and have a strategy of announcing the human rights violations that are occurring against uh, African-Americans and people of color within the United States as well. Without a doubt. And I would say that, you know, I teach human rights. I'm a scholar on human rights. And you know, using that platform, which has reignited engagement, uh, the George Lloyd uh, murder has definitely re-engaged the UN on these matters. And when you look at the UN Charter, it says it encourages every member state to respect human rights and the fundamental freedoms 
for all without distinction to race, sex, language, or religion. And there is a convention called the Convention on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, CERD. Uh, so we're seeing a re-engagement in international platforms and people coming together. Uh, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights expresses it beautifully. We're all born free and equal, and it applies to all of us, irrespective of our race or sex, et cetera. So in your view, do you think there could be uh, another a round of re-engagement at the UN by Americans addressing racial injustice in America at the UN? Absolutely. I think it, it should be something that we continue that legacy and uh, continue to build upon it. And I think for everybody within Alliance for Peace Building uh, and, 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 you know, uh, for global organizations like the one that I'm a part of, I think it's it's great to organize around that and to be brave and holding the mirror uh, to the United States. I think, you know, the greatest act of love uh, you can do is to hold the mirror to someone and, and tell them the truth about themselves because that's the truth that sets you free. So I think it's an important initiative for us to uh, partake in with the same uh, energy and vigor as we do for a lot of the <laughs> bad actors that are uh, uh, active today. So... Alan Charles, tell us what is next on your plate. I mean, you're doing a lot of work. Obviously, this has been a very engaging conversation, but what's next for you professionally and personally? Is there anything you're working on personally that you can share? Right. So, you know, as we talk about Juneteenth and, and, and celebrating the ending of slavery, as, as Brian Stevenson uh, talked about, slavery didn't end, it simply evolved. And so we're doing a lot of work right now with uh, returning citizens and uh, we're doing uh, work with uh, clemency and actually trying to get people out. So here in Virginia, on July 1st, simple possession of marijuana will be legalized. We are also looking to get uh, the legislative bodies to retroactively uh, pardon and grant clemency for people who are in prison right now for simple possession, and then also building up infrastructure and funding to help them kind of be restored into society. And then we're also doing a lot of work on the legacy of, again, uh, it just like uh, slavery didn't end it evolved, so did redlining, and so did Jim Crow, and so did restrictive covenants. So we're working a lot uh, here locally around housing, and not just affordable housing, which is important about who's going to live here next, but how do we help people stay within their homes and stay housed, especially as we see a lot of the eviction moratoriums are going to be uh, expiring as that were originally set in place due to COVID. So we have a lot of work here locally uh, to talk about uh, the systemic racism that impacts the living as well. So that's a lot of the stuff that we have coming in the queue here locally. That's a big agenda. Good luck. And thank, thank you, you so much for being with us today. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning into the Peace We Build It podcast. And thanks to our guest, Alan Charles Chipman of the Initiatives of Change USA. The Peace We Build It podcast is made possible through the financial support of the Alliance for Peace Building based in Washington, D.C. Tanya Domi is the host and senior fellow for communications at the Alliance for Peacebuilding, and Kevin Wolf, the audio engineer, provides technical assistance. This podcast can be found on Spotify, Apple, and where all podcasts are found.